Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, I've got the founding editor of Mediate and my old boss, Colby Hall, joining the show to discuss and debate all things about how the media has covered and is covering January 6th and election fraud. This is episode 21. All right, we're doing something a little different here today. Colby and I have had a couple discussions and some strong disagreements that were not recorded uh, just over the phone about how the media is covering January 6th, election fraud, quote, election liars, quote, the big lie, coverage of Brian Sicknick, and a lot more. So in the spirit of intellectual discomfort and having conversations out in the open, we had one here on the podcast. We start with comparing 2020 claims of an illegitimate election to 2016 claims of an illegitimate election. Thanks for doing this. I, I, I think um, you know it's it's interesting. This is going to be different than than uh, most of the Fourth Watch podcasts, just in the the type of uh, of interview here. Uh, and and frankly, you know, I, I want to say kind of up at the front, one of the things that is different is that we've we've sort of had this conversation before. I think this is technically going to be like our third conversation on this. Although it is certainly, yeah, I think the first one was in March, and now we're in in June, nearing July, and uh, it's it's more relevant than ever. There was actually uh, as of today an AP story uh, on this particular topic actually, uh, that I saw. Um, and also up front, a couple things. A, I don't, I don't know your politics. Uh, I don't think that we've ever really even talked about politics. I mean, I, I've been, uh, and this will come into play, maybe some relevance later. I, I've been uh, I, I'm transparent about who I voted for in presidential elections. So I've, I'm on the record that I didn't vote for Trump or Hillary or Biden. Uh, I wrote in Judge Judy and Kanye West in 2016 and 2020. Um, so, but I don't know yours either. And it's not really about politics. Um, to that point, you know, I, it's also, I'm most interested in the media side of this conversation, um, although happy to talk, you know, the politics of it as well. And, you know, the last sort of big difference is that, yes, it's the Fourth Watch podcast, but it's, it's not me interviewing you. I, I want this to be kind of an open conversation. Happy to ask or answer any questions you have. Just let's, you know, talk it all out. Uh, and sure. to, to that point, uh, where do you want to start? I've got a couple things. I've got, you know, we're going to talk big lie. We're going to talk about the coverage of January 6th that day and where it's gone months, five months, six months down the road. Uh, wh- where do you think is the best place to start. Uh, your name again is Dave. Is that right? Is this Dave? Oh, I will call you. We got to start. We got to start again. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, wait. But do we have to start again? Why do we have to start again? That's a joke. No, I'm just joking. Um, I think we're at a sort of really interesting time in political media uh, to get really deep. I think we're sort of at the end of any objectivity. So capital J journalism is a officially sort of done in the sort of Cronkite way. But I really do believe that the sort of... Um, you know, less the sort of the big lie rhetorical device or the use of that term to explain the rhetorical device, but the sort of ongoing sort of claim that the election was somehow not decided, that a recent poll suggested, or uh, was it uh, a recent poll said that uh, one in three, it was Monmouth, I I think, Monmouth poll said that one in three people believe that Biden's only president because the election was stolen. I really think that's a very dangerous place that we're in right now. I think that that's sort of... um, you know, a, a malignant cancer over our body politic, and that it's going to continue to metastasize because, uh, you know, I don't think there's any evidence at all that the election was stolen. And I think that former President Trump really, really hates the idea of being sort of considered a loser in the election and is willing to really kind of under, uh, not just undermine the electoral system, uh, but meaning itself. And he's got a lot of people believing, um, you know, raised serious questions. None of which are really, you know, they're baseless, I think, or they're not really rooted in, in facts. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think we're at a dangerous spot. Right? And I've, I've called out a lot of sort of, you know, right of center media outlets that they need to hold the former president accountable and say, no, the, the election was not stolen. Yeah, I, I think so. A couple of things on that. I, I, I think certainly, and I'm I, I wrote this uh, uh, many times in, in Fourth Watch. I I kept an open mind after November third, and then November I guess eighth was uh, when when Trump officially uh, when the media declared that Trump officially you know lost. There was enough of a uh, electoral victory there. Um, and kept an open mind to the election challenges that were presented and certainly did not see any. And, and obviously, they lost pretty much every election challenge. So I think it's pretty clear. I, I don't think that necessarily means that there was zero 
election fraud, but certainly not to overturn an election. And there's no evidence uh, of that. And so I, I think that's like the reality-based position for sure. And that is, as you point out, different than what Trump even to this day is is saying. Um, but, you know, I saw that poll, uh, which came out recently, about the 33% of, of Republicans who believe that, um, you know, the election was, that it, that it was, it was fraud or, or that it, you know, it was, it's illegitimate. And it, it matched up almost identically to, in 2016, uh, a poll that was done by the Washington Post that found that 33% of Democrats questioned whether Trump's victory was legitimate. And uh, and it, there was that that matched up with other polls, um, and and in fact there was another poll uh, of of just eighteen to thirty year olds that found fifty seven percent of eighteen to thirty year olds believe Trump's presidency was illegitimate. Um, and I I don't think these people uh, you know th- th- I worry about about sort of the way that we've gone where now it's two consecutive election cycles that have had this. Taint of it uh, for for people on on in 2016 who were on the left in 2020 on the right, um, but I think that there's a lot of crossover. I think that there's a lot of similarities between those, and the the coverage certainly has not shown similarities. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think mostly fair points. I'm not sure that I agree with where you arrived, but just to go through it a little bit, I think um, yeah. Well, first of all. Of course, there were uh, there are voter inaccuracies. There were dead people that uh, voted, and there were sort of um, you know single issues. And, and I think the largest, the most sort of legitimate claim by anyone who's upset that Biden was president is that um, sort of voter rules were changed in you know the run up to the sort of general election uh, in a way that really benefited. Biden would just sort of um, it allowed for um, absentee and mail-in voting, which largely, you know, the vast majority of which went for Biden. And I I think you can sort of explain that in Occam's razor sort of way that um, we have to remember that those those laws were passed at sort of the height of the pandemic when a lot of people were really gravely concerned. We didn't know what we didn't know at the time. And so there was really a very serious public health risk at play. And um, did that benefit Joe Biden? I think it did. Was it illegal? I, I don't think so. But we were in a once in a century situation. Um, but of course, I think you're right. There are there were anomalies, but not enough that was sort of widespread systemic yeah. voter fraud. Um, and to your larger point, you know, I, a friend of mine said this, you know, I saw another poll that said, you know, 67 percent of those polled thought that um, Vladimir Putin or Russia uh, sort of changed voter tallies. So there is, I think, a fair point to compare, to some degree at least, where we are right now to where we were in 2016. There's two enormous differences. One is, of course, Hillary Clinton conceded. She was late to concede, and she did it sort of you know, through gnashing teeth, but she did concede and moved on in the days that followed, you know, President, former President Trump just said yesterday in an interview with, I can't recall where, like right wing, I can't remember the outlet. He said that, you know, I'd never conceded, right? And so not only has he never conceded, you know, he's acknowledged that Biden is the president, but he's never properly conceded. But he also really has said a lot of things that have encouraged the things that have led to the insurrection. Is he responsible for the insurrection or the attack on the riot by, by his supporters um, on January 6th? Um, well, is he directly responsible, or, or is he sort of part of a larger thing? Yeah. That's that's why you need a commission. So let's pause. But, on but, the, but, let, me just, but let me just say that right. I do think the, the comparison to Russia in 2016, it, 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 they're very different. There was no sort of it, it, um, uh, whatever uh, international influence in the 2020 that we're aware of, where there really was uh, pretty big interference or meddling. Um, in 2016. So I think there was reason for questions. Your point is well taken. And I think that, you know, a lot of people that question whether or not he was a legitimate president, you know, they're the same extremists that are now saying that... um, that, that Trump is, but well, that, that, we're, that, that, a, we're that, in a scary point where people don't know what to believe anymore. So okay, but so so to that point, because I, I think the cause and effect when it relates to January sixth is, I believe, actually the crux of what we originally were talking about in March, and I want to get to that. But but talk about 
undermining the you know the fabric of our democracy. Let's go to Hillary Clinton because in so yes, Trump has. You know, he claims he never formally conceded. I think that, you know, he certainly put out things and he he walked out of the White House on January 20th. You know, there was a well, however you want to describe it, a transition of power that was I would call peaceful, but whatever you want to call it, 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 it trans power was, was transitional. It was not traditional. It was not traditional. <laughs> no, was yeah. There wasn't like a, a whole formal ceremony. You know, he got in his, uh, in his helicopter and his plane, he went to Mar-a-Lago and, and everyone moved on. Um in 2019, Hillary Clinton, in an interview with CBS, called Donald Trump a, quote, illegitimate president. Uh, in a clip from, uh, in, in an interview she did from the same time, this is when she was doing her book uh, tour, she said, you can run the best campaign, you can even become the nominee, and you can have the election stolen from you. That was in 2019. And now, that is Hillary Clinton doing it, which certainly echoes the kind of calls to illegitimize the election that happened in 2016. But well, but she did that in 2019 and not in, you know, doing it four, four years after, three years after is different than doing it sort of three months after. Well, she did it I consistently, I, I think. Yeah. But but also so did the media. And I think that's that's the most interesting part of this is that for years, uh, the, the media from the moment Donald Trump got into office, it, it was one story after the next that's going to be, you know, the the, the smoking gun that it's going to, you know, the Russia collusion smoking gun, which culminated in the Mueller report, which culminated in no smoking gun and, you know, no collusion. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. Well, I mean, I I, I, I I agree with your larger point that the media ha were guilty of a confirmation bias. They, it, it, they presented a narrative that they had sort of they had in their gut feeling. They saw all these clues and they were looking to confirm the bias that they already had. I, I, I agree with that point. I do think that there is evidence, not of collusion or a smoking gun, but if you read the Senate Intel Committee report, volume five, which was led by Richard Byrne, who was sort of a Republican majority committee, you know, there, there was evidence that the, the Trump campaign did coordinate with Russian intel officers. I mean, I, I, there's a lot of opacity that we still don't know. And you could argue that they weren't aware that they were Russian intel officers. Um, but there, there, there was evidence that the Russian intel were working in concert with people that were in touch with uh, with the Trump campaign. Now, I don't want to relitigate. Re but but you're not gonna, you're not going to say that the that the election is is illegitimate in 2016. No, right? of course not. Right. No, and I, I never did. Actually, I think, you know, sort of at the end of the day. And this is kind of like, I think where we sort of want to arrive. It reminds me of like the whole Bush Gore thing where we were looking at hanging chads. And at the end of the day, you kind of just have to say that there is no such thing as like sort of a perfect world. There is no like, there, it, we're in a time where there is nothing definitive. You just have to sort of accept like, well, this is as close to what we're going to know as we know. So, you know, after Trump was declared victor, I had always said that he was, you know, he's the president. And I, I think, you know, I could question a lot of what Hillary Clinton did, both as a candidate in the years that followed that I find indefensible. Um, but I also know that she didn't necessarily seek the public eye and she kind of was delighted to kind of dip to her yeah. home in Chappaqua and go hiking. And I think that that was the responsible, probably it was healthy for her own sort of sanity as well. But she said things that to, you point, to your point were entirely irresponsible and the, the media didn't handle her comments in much the same way. But, you know, I think they're apples and oranges. They're both fruits, but they're fruits of a different kind. I mean, Trump is actively promoting the idea that he only lost because of a stolen election. Very different from Hillary Clinton saying she only lost because of similar Russia. things, but kind of in passing. Why should the media pick and choose who to have on their air? And what's the difference between, say, Annalise Stefanik and Stacey Abrams? We'll agree that Trump is a unique political figure. Um, you know, it, it very. It, you know, we've never had a political figure who, at one time, was deciding whether Lil John or you know uh, Trace Atkins did better job selling pizza uh, and then became president. So you know, he's different. He's a different different kind of guy. Well, that's um, a terrible way to say it, but but we can agree on that absolutely. I mean, he is that among other things. So so. Uh, one can be a little bit harsher, but we'll leave it at that. And yeah, he's he's like no other elected official this nation's ever seen. Yeah, Absolutely. but but my point, and this this gets to kind of the election fraud lie and the quote big lie, uh, is that this is not particularly new. Now it feels new because Trump is, you know, there's no one like him when it comes to promoting, and if he's promoting something that is has been promoted before, and he does it in his own unique way, I think that 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 feels different. But even 
you mentioned the 2000 election. You know, Jake Tapper of CNN now wrote a book called The Plot to Steal the Presidency about the 2000 presidential election, which was about, now I will say, about Democrats and Republicans plotting to, quote, steal the presidency. I mean, right. and then, of course, 2016. And I mean, you know, and and this also gets to the the, the whole thing about who is a is part of the, the, quote, big lie. And a lot of times, and this this goes to those, the the people that I've written about, Matt Negrine, and and you would I would even group in people like a Jake Tapper now who refuse to put certain people on the air. A lot of those come down to people who objected to the, the 2016 in, in a formal objection to the results of the 26, uh, I'm sorry, the 2020 election, a formal, uh, you know, objection to the to the results, which is something that has happened every single election cycle for decades from both parties. And now, right. I, mean, it, I think I, I grew up learning about how sort of, you know, whisper, whisper, uh, President Kennedy was elected because his father, Joe, did some sort of deal with the mafia and stole that election. So I, I think stealing elections is part of the American mythology. Uh, and, and you're right, sort of at one level to say that that is a storyline and a narrative that comes pretty much every four years. I think the significant difference and, and it's convenient, I think, for the Trump side to to gloss over it. But I, I think the degree with which the former President Trump and his surrogates have sort of fostered this uncertainty and gone to great lengths to talk about baseless conspiracies of Smartmatic and, you know, servers in Italy or Germany, I can't even recall. I mean, the, the, the coordinated media effort from his surrogates to and the follow-up audits that we're seeing uh, which seemed to be kind of specious, like say in Arizona. Well, who's we've covering never that? Seen that before. Oh, I mean, we've who's never covering seen that Ar- level of before? Okay, but who's covering Arizona? I mean, is, is CNN covering Arizona more, or is is you know Fox and Newsmax covering Arizona? Well, I, I think CNN is, but I think it's a legitimate story. I mean, if if you have like, you know, this 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 local election, this state election has been has there's been two recounts and it's been certified by uh, Governor Ducey. And uh, the state legislator there, whatever, and these are people that had ostensibly voted for Trump and are, had been Trump supporters, and yet that isn't good enough. So that we need to do this sort of audit that's run by people that are purely partisan by an independent com- uh, company. I think that's I think that's worthy of coverage of CNN. I, I think you know your point that it's kind of a curiosity and we're kind of paying attention to the margins. Yeah, that's fair, but uh, I I think it's a legitimate story when. Yeah. When a state is doing a kind of poorly regulated audit of an election that's twice been certified, I, I think there's a very. I mean, I, I think there's a very clear reason why CNN's covering it, and it's because um, they're trying to hold on to the you know the last grasps of of Donald Trump that they possibly can in any possible way that they can. Um, and Absolutely that, right, and that fits I think that, that, that narrative. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's. That's by turns a cynical take and an absolutely correct one as well. And I think that, uh, you know, I think you see a lot of cable news. You know, it's not cable news. It's entertainment packaged as news. And Trump was really good for ratings. And he's gone and the ratings have gone down. But I don't know if like rate, we, we judge ratings. We put too much value in ratings, I think. Um, but I, I think you're right. I think it's good for them in their business to continue to tell this story I do, though, think that Fox News and OAN and Newsmax would do a better job of of covering that side as well. Maybe not to the degree that CNN and MSNBC do, but uh, I think it's a big story. Yeah. You know, we, we can disagree on that, but I think it's a big story. So uh, I, I think, you know, and I, and I want to just like preface this. My, my position on this, when I mentioned Hillary Clinton in 2016, I could point to Stacey Abrams and the way that she handled her, you know, defeat in, in uh, you know, in, in the interim between 2016 and 2020. Uh, my solution to this is not to not is, is not to you know make don't ever talk to Hillary Clinton or only bring her on to ask her why she refuses to call it a legitimate election it's it's completely opposite I, I think that they that politicians lie by their nature no matter who they are um, that that often uh, politicians are type a personalities who take losing very poorly um, very very rarely do you see a, an Andrew yang come to the mic when on, on, a, on a losing night and and uh, and gracefully walk away um, 
and and I, I think that the media's responsibility is to portray is to show their audience uh, as wide a net of of who is important and interesting uh, as possible. And we shouldn't like have this litmus test about anything. You know, I, I I absolutely think you should put Stacey Abrams on and not have to ask her about whether she accepts the results of her election. I mean, it, I think that's totally ridiculous. Chris Wallace used the term moral posturing. I think that's I think that's right. What what is it about someone like Elise Stefanik or Josh Hawley or Kevin McCarthy that makes them I, I get people like, let's say, Jenna Ellis from the campaign or even right. Donald Trump. But what is it about the ancillary tangential figures that make them radioactive when it comes to the media now? Well, the uh, the argument that is being made, say, by Jake Tapper or anyone else that sort of has that litmus test is that if they're willing to lie about something so fundamental, then you can't believe them on anything. But I, but I ultimately agree with you 100%. And I feel like part of the problem is that elected officials just lie. And they don't necessarily even lie. They're just sort of using alternate facts. They're People are so good at their sophistry that they're so they're so married or wedded to their talking points that a lot of these interviews that you see on say Sunday morning talk shows with either Chris Wallace or Jake Tapper, two of the people I think are the best in the business in terms of like having the massive ego and the and the correct ability to uh, judge and the facility to render good journalistic debate. Even these guys can't get these people off um, their talking points. But I've forever talked about. You know, I still think Joe Biden should go on Fox News. I wrote a piece for media back in 2009 that said the smartest thing that Obama could ever do was go on O'Reilly, yeah. uh, the, the factor. And I, I think, Josh, I would I would pay money, pay-per-view, for, for Jake Tapper to interview, say, Josh Hawley. And I think Stacey Abrams, I would love to see her get grilled by, you know, Brett Baer or Chris Wallace, for that matter. I, I wrote a big article that sort of uh, defended, uh, what's the real world guy, the former Wisconsin? Yeah, Sean, uh, Duff, Sean Duffy. Sean Duffy. He was a CNN contributor. And, and that judge, that um, hire by Jeff Zucker got a ton of criticism. And I was like, look, you know, we need to have conversa- more conversation, not less of them. And, uh, you know, it gets to the sort of very balkanized, silo- siloed, you know, political media diet that we each have, you know, I have lots of friends that exclusively watch Fox News and listen to the former Rush Limbaugh show. And Brownstone Brooklyn's filled with people who, you know, friends of mine who only listen to NPR and watch MSNBC. And I, I find both of them sort of like boring because they don't have a very broad sensibility. Um, So yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I don't like that litmus test. I think that the best and the healthiest thing that we can do is to encourage the sort of cross-party conversations. Though I don't know if the business, the economics are, are structured in such a way that creates any incentive. So I don't think anything is going to change anytime soon. Yeah. And look, I, that, that's certainly something you and I agree on. Um, you know, I think that that intellectual discomfort is is healthy and super important. And frankly, it, it helps, you know, your own art, make your own argument better, um, right. potentially, uh, or, or, you know, or you, or you don't feel so, so, you know, dug your heels in too much on, on things. Um, but so, there was a there was the Politico article that showed the divide between the Chris Wallace and Jake Tapper side of this argument. Um, I, I think most of the media would fall in the Jake Tapper side of the argument that you don't put these people on TV unless you know, as you talk about, it's a pay per view battle with Josh Hawley over January sixth and you know November eighth and and all of that. Um, and I, I just I don't understand why. Like I don't understand why this is still like I get get Josh Hawley on. There's probably a lot to talk about. You can talk about tech. You can talk about exactly. other things. But what what is it about that? What is it about January sixth that makes it have to be this continued theme? Where uh, as you wrote in that piece, the big lie of election fraud is a persistent and malignant cancer on the nation's body politic. That was, br- that was brilliantly written. How prosaic. Um, <laughs> thank you for saying that. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure what I understand the question. Like, what was it about January 6th? I think there's, you know, there's some debate as to the sort of scale. Was it just 800? You know, I, I think there's a mental health issue on January 6th. I think a lot of the people that were sort of a part of that insurrection were not thinking of clear mind and, you know, were sort of conspiracy theorists that were led to believe and were willfully believing things that, were, were wildly untrue. Um, 
but there's also kind of, you know, when we talk about the media, and I noticed that you do this a lot, and I think a lot of people do, when you talk about the media, very often you're talking about Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, MSNBC, NBC News, what have you. But really, Fox News is is a very different sort of creature. Um, but they're the most highly watched cable news outlet in an era where sort of an golden era of cable news. And Fox News, you know, kind of gets a pass for some of the same stuff because rarely do you see on Fox News, especially their primetime programming, anyone as a guest that is sort of, you know, taking a different point of view. Will Kane had Nomi Kunst. was really great, fiery interview. And I was really impressed with Will Kane, but in part because it was so rare to see Fox News have on a, a sort of an ideological foe in a really meaningful back and forth. So I, I, I'm all for the dialogue. What's different about January 6th? I think it's convenient for the right to pretend that it wasn't that big of a deal. I think it's convenient for the left, the CNNs and, and, and Washington Post and New York Times, to you know, sort of smear the Trump administration with that, yeah. and it helps them politically because you know, 2022 midterms, if Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have their way, that will be a referendum on January 6th. Yeah, well, uh, but okay. So are you? But okay, let me let me let me break this down though. So, so I on on one hand, I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I think that um, I th- that. That I, I wish you know Fox had more people on that disagree with them, and and vice versa. I think you know smart debate is is great. You don't really get that on any side of the cable news aisle, for sure. Coming up, we get into the question of the quote big lie: why claims of election fraud this time seem to be covered so differently by the media, and the appropriateness of that term. But first, the latest edition of How Did This Get Published? The Washington Post of Democracy Dies in Darkness fame had a video recently that left a lot of people going, what are we even doing here? This is an example of something that's so anti-racist, it's actually racist. A video that's part of the Washington Post's new normal series. The title of the video is, What is White Racial Identity and Why is it Important? Clicking the video and finding out what mental health experts and scholars have to say about why understanding your whiteness and the ways that white supremacy benefits you is an important part of becoming self-aware. Here's what some of the people that were quoted in the video had to say. One trauma specialist said, white people have got to start getting together specifically around race, urging the introduction of what they called accountability groups that meet on a lifelong basis. Another suggestion from a psychologist is that you make exploring white identity, quote, a lifelong project by examining the family you live in, the community you live in, and what role whiteness plays in all of that. As Zed Jelani asked on Twitter, did David Duke produce this Washington Post video? Or as The Atlantic's Derek Thompson tweeted, who's Derek Thompson, certainly no conservative, not even particularly heterodox, tweeted, these activists are literally asking white people to form whites-only accountability groups to meet regularly and indefinitely to talk about the power of their whiteness. And this is supposed to be a strategy to improve racial comedy and integration. I, I mean, I try to have an open mind. I'm a you know straight white guy. I wonder about the value of me and a bunch of other white dudes going getting together to talk about how lucky we are all are to be white and how horrible that is. Can we do maybe like a black man, Hispanic woman, trans man, a Muslim woman? Maybe that can be the accountability group. I mean, maybe that can actually bring some intellectual discomfort forward and striving for actual enlightenment. Not sure what a bunch of white guys getting together and talking about how great it is to be white and how bad that is actually accomplishes. Or maybe one of the -the out-of-the-box solutions could be for white racial identity to be less important. Maybe we should de-emphasize all racial identity, but certainly white racial identity in recentering it in the American culture. (sighs) The Washington Post. How did this get published? More with Colby coming up, but first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that formed the greatest country on the planet. The First is free, no subscription, no credit cards, no trials, no censorships. Watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, back to Colby Hall. There's ground in between saying it's no big deal and doing what mainly CNN, I would say. I mean, I think CNN and The Washington Post uh, in you know print digital space are, are, I think, the two biggest that have made January 6th this this 
anchor where every other piece of coverage just kind of goes around. I I saw this was months after. I mean, this was a couple weeks ago in June. There's breaking news. We have a new video from January 6th. I mean, like, what what is the purpose of this? And what uh, even if we, whatever you want to call it, I, I would call it a, a riot at the Capitol. We want to call it an insurrection. I mean, I, I don't really want to debate the definition. Yeah, I, don't, I don't get caught up in I mean, it was a riot. Yeah. It was an attack. But, but, you know, it was bad. Uh, no doubt right. about it. I wrote about that the next night. It was bad. But there were we we actually just lived through a summer of you know talk about CNN people were rioting and breaking into the CNN headquarters in Atlanta and we weren't learning the names of, of every person who did that and and you know and calling the cops who defended the CNN center heroes and 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 going and 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 you know having them on for months and months after what it, I mean I know what the answer in my opinion but yeah but, that's a false equivalency that's a false equivalency the the, the riots the, the racial reckoning that occurred last summer was a result of a nine-minute video that we all saw of George Floyd being killed, murdered by a cop, you know, extra, uh, extrajudicial killing. Uh, and, and, you know, and that came after Breonna Taylor. Uh, it's it, it sort of, and Eric Garner, there's, there's a long list of people of color who have been treated unfairly by the police. What, what we saw on January 6th, following, you know, President Trump's Save America rally, um, a mob of people attacked the Capitol. So it, I, I think they're both big stories, and we saw tons of coverage of the mob attacking the CNN building. Um, but you know, I participated in peaceful protests, and so, I think you yeah. know, I, I, I think peace, I think most of what happened in the summer with the racial reckoning was peaceful. Well, I, yes, of course, yes, there was isolated yes. there was isolated riots and violence that is condemning. But an attack on the Capitol. I think is a materially a qualitatively different thing, and that's why you see way way different. But but to your question, Wait, hold on, hold on. Let me just, let me just say. So I, I think though that's that's a false equivalency because I I agree with you. I I actually think that the people who are breaking into the CNN center were not doing so because they saw a video of George Floyd or Breonna Taylor. I think the majority of people who were involved in social justice protests were doing so um, because of of you know for very legitimate reasons and doing. Doing so peacefully, just right. like on January 6th, the majority of right. people that exactly. were in D.C. that day were not involved in any riot or any criminal activity, and a very small group of those that co-opted that 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 day that were not Antifa, were not you know I'm not they were Trump supporters, but they were a very small minority of those that that co-opted that that event where thousands and hundreds of thousands were were there doing so peacefully. I, I think that's a fair point. Um, I, you know, obviously the the. CNN's headquarters in, in in Atlanta is a very different thing than, you know, sort of the People's House, the U.S. Capitol building. Uh, Arthur Ashe, I'm going to tie these two things together, I think, that will hopefully make sense. Arthur Ashe, um, you know, in his biography made, it, I think, a very salient point, and that is, um, you know, um, you, you can't expect people uh, to abide by a social contract that they don't benefit from. And so I think what you see, to your point, the rioters who exploited the whole racial reckoning protest to sort of get their own and to smash windows and to grab TVs and looters. That's horrible. That's awful. But these are people who are sort of barely surviving. I'm not giving them a pass. I'm just explaining that. I think you could also apply that logic to those who sort of crashed the Capitol and were rifling through papers. These are, they're, they're more similar than they are different because they, these are a lot of desperate people who really felt that they had no outlet, and they're not benefiting from any social contract. So why should why should they do that? There's also this sort of phenomenon of anonymity, right? Like you, you get into a mob mentality, whether it's you know looting, uh, you know, sort of the Best Buy in Brooklyn Center, Minneapolis or Minnesota, or uh, going into the Capitol. You get caught up in it, and that's that's just human nature, and that's 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 bad. So that, um, right, but and, and I and I agree with you. But then why why make this into the into the story that the CNNs of the world and MSNBCs of the world playing the videos over and over again, identifying these people by name, covering each and every one of their trials? You it's know. a celebrity. It's a celebrity. I mean, it, you know, this is sort of a, a, a weird term of celebrity in media world, whether it, whatever website or like. You know, people realize that their audience uh, has their own celebrities. Like food blogs, like know that Whole Foods stories are that Whole Foods is a celebrity to a food blog. 
um, CNN and, and a lot of political media that's center left or or progressive know that their audience um, wants more information about this because it's, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. It's sexy. And is yeah. that responsible? Is that journalism? No. But, but you know, getting back to the point we made earlier, it's not really news. It's entertainment. Uh, is it responsible? Uh, you know, there's that's a good debate. I I think that no one really wants to talk about Shades of Grey, but I think it's worthy of coverage. Is it worthy of obsessing over? I, I don't think so. But 24 hours in a day, give the people what they want, and it's this self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, the more you hear about it, the more the worse you think it is. But, you know, you see that on Fox News with, you know, critical race theory or the crisis at the border or, you know, Ben Dominic saying America is in crisis. You would think that, like, we're going to hell in a handbasket because viewers and gated communities want to have their opinions, you know, reinforced. Um, so... Well, at one point, we'll get into uh, our, our Ben Dominic debate. <laughs> I'll defend okay. Ben Dominic, but not today. Uh, I, I I see what you're saying. Although I think that the the more equivalent it would be like, let's say, I, and this and this bugs me a little bit because I think it happens on the right. I don't know if it happens so much on Fox News, but it, it happens on like the bright parts of the world where one incident of you know um, an illegal uh, you know immigrant killing uh, a person, for example, becomes like a two week story, or or you know a, a, a single instance of of, of violence become like you dig into the you know the you find every picture of the person. I think that that is kind of equivalent to the way that these more mainstream publications are treating the people who are involved in the riot on, on January sixth. I find it, um, you know, as you mentioned, I think I think it's certainly more. Well, look at look space. at Brian Signick's uh, Brian Signick's partner. Uh, she's almost a paid contributor on CNN. Like I don't know what else she could say about the tragic loss of her of her partner Brian Signick. Um, but it's it. She wrote a column that wasn't really any different from anything that. But it, it it keeps that story alive. But to your point just then, like Eric Deggins, the I think NPR TV critic, wrote a review that was kind of negative towards Tom Hanks, and suddenly you know the whole day next day Fox News was talking about how Tom Hanks was being canceled only because this one reviewer wrote one thing that was like a little less than charitable towards Tom Hanks. So yeah, that, I mean they. Unfortunately, a lot of media consumers uh, don't necessarily think as critically as they should. Yeah. And, and you know, Tucker Carlson's really, really good at that, of writing, saying things that are like the most forbidden topics and talking about them in a high, low, bro, uh, high brow, low brow way that you can kind of get, you know, if you're a critical thinker, the, you know, the meta commentary. Yeah. But a lot of his viewers just take it face value. I don't know. You know whatever they say. Maybe they do. I, I, I think I think I think they, they get I think they're in on it more than the, the media that gets uh, up in arms over it. Yeah, I think you're right. The fourth watch lightning round is coming up, but first we're gonna talk about how Brian Sicknick and Ashley Babbitt have been covered in the media. The Sicknick story is actually one that I think really shines a light on on just how poor, despite the massive amount of January 6th media coverage we've gotten, how poor that coverage has has been, um, and, and you know certainly the way that 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 you know the tragic death of, of Brian Sicknick was originally covered as a Trump supporter beating him to death with a fire extinguisher through multiple outlets, New York Times and others, how uh, a Trump supporter was uh, reported to have been trampled to death by fellow Trump supporters rioting at the Capitol. We then found out it was a drug overdose. And, you know, I have to say, I mean, this is kind of touching an area that that I think people are uncomfortable with, but I find it very strange, the coverage of Ashley Babbitt, the one person who is described as the five that died that day, the only one that's described by the medical examiner as a homicide by uh, being shot to death by a police officer in, you know, as she was trying to get through a window. Um, we don't know who that police officer is. There's, there, it, it was very quickly ruled, you know, this was an acceptable uh, use of force, and that was the end of it. Um, I find it very uh, strange and, and a clear double standard, by the way, that that, that, that story has been covered within the media larger. Um, I, well, I understand that, that confusion. Um, I think that the safest thing to say about the reporting there is that there was sort of a massive fog of war, that there was, you know, um, a lot of chaos. And people weren't, you know, reporters weren't falsely reporting things. They were trying to get the best story that they could at the time. Um, and there was footage that appeared to show Brian Signet getting, like, there was someone throwing a, uh, fire extinguisher, a fire extinguisher 
towards the area where he was. And so it, they thought that they had seen that. Now, was that confirmation bias or was it just sort of trying to put pieces together? You know, we, we live in a time where process journalism is is the thing. So we report what we know at the time. Does that mean that we we got it wrong and there was some sort of conspiracy? I don't think so. I think, you know, there's a responsible way to do that. I think Ashley Babbitt was, was, I mean, it's tragic that she died, but she also, she was breaching the house chamber. Like that was the last area where on the other side of that hallway, our elected officials were, uh, you know, so I, I, I don't think it's a double standard. I think Brian Sicknick is, was a, a cop that was being sort of beaten by these intruders. Uh, and did he die as a result of that direct beating? No. Was he under a great deal of stress? Yes. Ashley Babbitt was, you know, trespassing in an area that was meant to be secure. Uh, well, the, we, the Babbitt double standard, I think, is less than to compare to Brian Sicknick than to just imagine if if it was a criminal rioter, whatever they were doing, uh, you know, rioting during the summer of social justice protests, someone who was not, you know, a, a legitimate protester, but someone who was committing a crime while they were, you know, while this was going on and a cop shot them in the, in the uh, you know, in, while that crime was being committed, I, I think that the coverage would have been a lot different. I mean, it's a little bit of a, a hypothetical, but you know, I, I, I don't think that they're comparative because a rioter uh, getting shot by a cop, you know, while he's looting uh, Best Buy is a very different thing than someone who is breaching the House chamber of the Capitol with the express purpose of trying to overturn the Electoral College certification. Now, it's I, I, do I wish that she were shot? I mean, I, no, I, it would be greater if that had been resolved peacefully. But again, we look at the footage, and if you were in that moment, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. It's it's tragic that she died, but this idea that she was somehow a hero, uh, and I know that's not what you're no, saying, no, no. I, I, but I don't. I think it's a false equivalency to say that you know Ashley Babbitt. You know, if she were a rider killed by a cop, she would have been treated differently. I don't think so. I think she's actually been more deified by the right, by the Paul Gosars, and you know, even Tucker himself is often sort of gone out of his way to defend her when really she I, I was, she was I, the first person to breach through that window and that's well, why she shot I, I look no, I, that was exactly right the, Paul, the she, Paul Gosars have been have been weirdly you know trying to you know hero you know trying to make her a hero that that that's weird I, I think Tucker is asking the questions about about why there is not actually like more of a review of of what happened there um I, I, I agree with him on that I think that there should be a larger I mean I'm all for the commission regardless of who it is I, I think we should look at everything holistically and I know that there's two like the there's the, the congressional report and the Capitol Police report, but we haven't really having something look holistically at the whole thing and the role that Oath Keepers and, and Proud Boys and any coordination that they had with Talking Points USA. Like, uh, you know, maybe it exonerates everyone. I would be great for America if it did. I don't think it will. I think it will be become a political football. And again, I think it helps the Democrats in the midterms to keep that story alive. But I think it also helps with the body politic to kind of get to the to the bottom of it. And, yeah. you know, I, and I hope that Nancy Pelosi, when she names her committee, she includes Republicans, even if it's Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and, you know, whomever, uh, it, it needs to be more bipartisan than just select Eric Swalwells and Adam Schiff. Well, we've seen enough those I, I don't know if Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger would, would be the, the Republicans that I would, I would call making it. Uh, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? But no, like, I, 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 I agree. I hope that it is, it is bipartisan. All right. Last thing, um, big lie, because I, I, I it, it, it's, very little offends me. Um, I, I, it, it takes a lot to offend me. I, I, I'm sort of disgusted by the the whole the big lie. Um, as as someone who's Jewish, and the big lie, you know, goes back to uh, Hitler's memoir Mein Kampf. Um, it was originally there as a way of of essentially making the case for the Holocaust, smearing Jews as perpetrators of the quote big lie. Um, it also, though, number two, why it's sort of odd to me that it's become this talking point is it originally started because Joe Biden said it. Um, so it was a talking point from the Democratic Party before it was a media talking point. Um, you know, but thirdly, it, it's it's making an editorial choice. I feel every time, you know, CNN uses it, every time it's written about in The Washington Post, every time it's someone tweets about the quote, big lie, you're making an editorial choice about, about you know, the the incident that essentially the January 6th and about about election fraud, which again, I know I, I think 
is is a rich tradition of people lying about the election and refusing to, you know, gracefully concede. But but specifically calling it the big lie. What, what, I, I don't see how that could be possibly appropriate for, for you know, the people that consider themselves objective on this. Yeah, you know, I, you've mentioned the, to this, we had some back and forths, like I think on Twitter or DM and stuff, and uh, yeah, I've reflected on that. And, you know, I when I use that term, I use it in quotes as a shorthand to sort of talk about the larger story instead of like, you know, it saves me from writing a graph of context that everyone already knows, uh, which is probably irresponsible. And so, I, you know, when I use the term big lie, I'm really only referring to its use by both Biden and Trump and Liz Cheney as shorthand. Um, uh, I think when Biden used it, he wasn't specifically, and I'm not trying to excuse him, I'm just saying I think it was clearly... He was talking about sort of the rhetorical device, um, but for many... As you said, it, you know, it sort of connotes, uh, you know, he used it to blame the Jews uh, for the loss of uh, World War One, and then later used it himself uh, to sort of as part of the Holocaust. Right. You know, I, my sense is when I heard Biden say that or when I've heard Liz Cheney or, or Trump say that. It wasn't a reference to Holocaust, but it, but it's loose language. Biden did. He's he used it as as Goebbels. Uh, he actually referenced Goebbels in it um, to describe Hawley and Cruz as perpetrators. Uh, if you tell a lie enough, it, it just becomes you know the, the norm. Um, right. Well, so, but, but I don't think that he was necessarily trying to show disrespect towards the victims of the no, Holocaust. No, no, I don't right, think yeah, he was. Right. No, you're right. Right. No, right. But but um, you know, and that is sort of a shorthanded and uh, you know. The, it is a sort of uh, it is a phenomenon that I learned even as a camp counselor, pranking my kids like the, the most outrageous lie that I could tell them about like once I told kids that I once ate the world's largest potato and they totally bought it because who would make up such a dumb lie like it it, it sort of works not, not to get off track but you know I I do think that you do make a point that when we become when we start using the the term big lie we are using a packaged sort of meme that is not fair or responsible as proper journalists. It is shorthand, but sometimes you can't really have the luxury of shorthand. Uh, and we are making editorial judgments. I, I think most of the editorial judgment is sound in that um, there is no evidence that the election was stolen. But there's probably better ways to convey that without referencing Goebbels and without sort of you know, signaling so clearly, like, this is this is a definitive thing. I mean, I have a lot of conservative friends, like, why are we talking about Caleb Howes, a good friend of mine on Mediaite? He's yeah. like, we're just using this as packaged, like, like there's no debate about this. And, you know, I, I think you make a good point, and I'm going to do better about that moving forward. I, I, I think, you know, of course, to go back to what we said earlier, CNN uses it because that's what their audience wants to hear about, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, but you never hear that term really on Fox News, which gets, you know, twice the viewers uh, and NBC News, you know, somewhere in between. Yeah. Tucker uses it disdainfully uh, to describe, you know, the big lie as, as now. And and to your point, you mentioned Trump. Uh, you know, he is using, you know, in the way that he co-opted, you know, fake news back you know, originally in 2016, it was it was, uh, you know, being used by the Brian Stelters of the world as a way to describe the type of news that helped get Trump election, elected. And then he then co-opted it and started using it to describe the media as fake news. He's trying to do the same thing. I think it's right. just as wrong and for him. Lugan, Lugan Press was like a sort of another Nazi era term for, for, you know, sort of propaganda that was fake. And, you know, Trump sort of reclaimed that phrase. I even wrote a column one saying that, you know, dear Trump and your supporters, fake news doesn't mean critical press. Yeah. It means propaganda. Uh, and yet that's, you know, that's where we are. And that gets to this really sort of big philosophical debate that no one really wants to have, the ephemeral nature of meaning. Like words have no intrinsic meaning. And I think we're kind of struggling with that as a society right now, that everything is subjective. If everything is subjective, nothing means anything. I sound like Nietzsche right now. But no, it's, but, uh, yeah. it, but I, I think we're struggling with with the nature of meaning itself right now. And, and, I, and I would just say I, I agree with you. And, and I wonder 
how much of that is, you know, we, we started back when you and I were, you know, when I was at Mediate and, and I was working for you, uh, I, only, you know, 10, 12 years ago, um, uh, we were talking about the 24 hour news cycle. I mean, the 24 hour news cycle is, is dead. I mean, the, the Twitter news cycle is like 30 minutes, an hour. I mean, you, if I don't open my Twitter app for four hours, I don't know what the hell is going on on there. It's crazy. I, and, it's, it's, and as for a guy with ADD, like it's, it just, I, I'm too online. By the way, you you mentioned earlier about politics. I'm about to say that Sean Hannity once told me, I hear you're liberal. And I told him, yeah, I'm more liberal than you are. But at the same time, Rachel Maddow has called me a conservative TV writer. <laughs> and I'm kind of happy to be somewhere in between. Like, yeah. I like to be a centrist. I think, and you do a good job of this. I mean, maybe it's good media DNA, but it, rare are the media outlets that try to fairly call balls and strikes, right? And yeah. uh, Trump, is, Trump has changed the game completely and made people way too obsessed with that. I think it would be healthier if he sort of exited the stage, though I don't think he's willing to do that anytime soon. Yeah, I uh, I, I agree. I always say my, my, my best day at media was when I got called uh, a liberal by news, newsbusters and a conservative by Media Matters. It was, you uh, know you're on, winning. On the same day. <laughs> uh, all right, Colby, that was great. Uh, let's go to our lightning round here. Six questions, 60 seconds. Where were you born? Columbus, Ohio. You're the editor-at-large of Mediate. What is one benefit and one cost of that job? The benefits are being able to work at home and sort of be obsessed with the news. One of the drawbacks is uh, I'm too online. <laughs> Me too. Who's someone who's been a mentor for you? Dan Abrams. Yeah. Me too. Who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? Sean Hannity and Don Lemon, both. Nice. Who's one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? Steve Krakauer. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, one year from today, what's one prediction for the media? Oh, wow, that's a big one. One, uh, one year from today, um, the U.S. men's national team has advanced to the, <laughs> to the knockout stage of the World Cup. Uh, in the media world, uh, um, Suzanne Scott is retiring from CEO and Jeff Zucker has moved to Fox News. <laughs> what? Okay. No, I just that's an absurdist thing. If, that will never happen. If that, that happen. I mean, if that happens, uh, then then this will become the the hottest podcast on on, <laughs> on, uh, on the net. Uh, Colby, I really appreciate it. That was that was great. I'm glad we did it. See, that was fun. I can do this anytime. You're a good dude. Thanks to Colby. Hope you enjoyed that uh, as much as I did. Remember, Fourth Watch is not just a podcast. It's also a newsletter. You can go to fourthwatch.media to subscribe free. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in this show, as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And download this podcast and subscribe, rate, review, like uh, on any of the podcast platforms where you like to listen to your podcast. This was produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. Next episode with New York Magazine's Arin Carmone. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader